This morning I may proclaim to you the word of the Lord as we read it from Isaiah 39 and 40. And in particular, I'd like to focus our attention upon the first two verses of chapter 40, which I'll read with you once more. Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. After the ministry of the word, let us sing in response Psalm 86, the stanzas 4, 5, and 6. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when Isaiah 40 comes to mind, you may very well think of music, specifically the most well-known oratorio ever written, Messiah. Each year, Handel's Messiah is performed all around the world. Most often, at least in North America, the performances take place during the time of Advent. Perhaps you've already gone this season, or are yet planning to go. Maybe you've enjoyed the music in your home or in your vehicle, whether on the radio or on a CD or MP3 player. No other work of music has endured and enjoyed so many performances for such a long period of time. And that's all the more striking when we learn that Handel completed his entire musical score in only 24 days. Can you believe that? He wrote more than 250 pages of music, including 20 choral numbers and more than 30 solos and instrumentals in less than a month. It's an astonishing accomplishment. It has value for us, not only for its musical quality, but also for its words, which, as you of course probably know, consist entirely of biblical quotations. They bear quite the impact upon the listener. One of the reasons for that is because of where Handel begins the oratorio. It's always striking that a work entitled Messiah a work that attempts to describe the story of Christ's birth, passion, death, resurrection, and ascension doesn't begin in Bethlehem. No, Handel does not begin with the coming of the Savior, but with his, the prophecy of his coming. He begins with one of the most hopeful texts of all of scripture, Isaiah 40. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. In fact, much of the story of salvation is told through prophecy. But Handel begins with the promise of our text, promise of the end of judgment and the return of consolation to God's people. This is the message that the Lord gives to the downtrodden, to those living in sin and misery. So it's a message fitting for us today. 
who live in the same fallen and broken world. It's a message of comfort for God's struggling, broken people, his children. It's a message of the promise of hope in the Messiah when every single last human hope has let us down. So I want to proclaim to you the word of our God this morning in this way. The Lord announces to the downtrodden his comforting promise of salvation. And we'll look at two things. First, the context of his promise, and secondly, the content of his promise. So first, we see the context, the background of the Lord's promise. The prophet Isaiah, like all other prophets in the Old Testament, was called by God to call God's people to repentance, and often at the same time to prophesy looming judgment. In the case of Isaiah, who prophesied in the southern kingdom of, his, of Judah during the reigns of Jotham, Uzziah, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, Isaiah prophesied and warned about the coming exile. We read about that in chapter 39, particularly verses 5 through 7. Isaiah has to go to Hezekiah, king of Judah, and give this message. Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget. More on that word this afternoon, by the way. And they shall become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The question arises, what led to this message of the coming exile as God's judgment? What were these circumstances facing God's people at that time? Isaiah prophesied during a time of turbulent developments internationally. Politics were critical at this time. There is some serious empire building going on in Assyria to the north, to the point that it has become a great international power. Assyria starts pushing against the northern kingdom, which was under the reign at the time of Pekah. Pekah, in turn, gets worried, turns to Judah, to King Ahaz, and he asks for an alliance. That doesn't really materialize, and eventually the northern kingdom falls, which in turn makes Judah quite nervous, since the northern kingdom was much stronger politically, and for that matter, larger geographically. It was simply more powerful. Political powers in Jerusalem are divided. They wondered whether to form an alliance with Assyria to the north or Egypt to the south. It's in this setting, beloved, that the prophet Isaiah is working. A recurring theme that you find through the first 39 chapters of Isaiah is that Israel has to trust the Lord in the face of threats from the surrounding nations. God's people were continually tempted to place trust in themselves or other nations. You can read some of this in 2 Kings 15 through 20. And God's repeated response is that those other nations would fail them 
God even delivered Jerusalem from the Assyrian conquest of Israel, chapters 36 through 39 of Isaiah. Sadly, that doesn't result in Judah trusting him. So God comes with judgment, saying that the result of trusting other nations is going to be destruction, and sometimes even from the very nation in whom they trusted for help. There is this fast succession in the first 39 chapters of warnings of impending destruction. The Lord is pronouncing judgment upon his unfaithful people. It was a hopeless case for Judah. But it was her own fault. For it was not only internationally that matters were at a breaking point, internally as well, there was strife. Judah's wickedness had been multiplying. Isaiah has been preaching against all the abuses of the people. For led by King Ahaz, Judah has been following in the footsteps of Israel to the north. There was moral corruption with the rich ripping off the poor. There was false worship. There was political corruption. Daily life was tainted by the works of the devil. All this in the nation through which the Lord was to bless the nations. So the Lord determined that this could not be left unpunished. Just as exile befell Israel, who was carted off to Assyria, so Judah is going to follow in their footsteps. Exile is actually already mentioned towards the beginning. Chapter 5, verse 13, for example. The Lord will judge his people to purify the nation of unrighteousness and remove the ungodly. And so Isaiah's message to King Hezekiah in chapter 39 is very dark. It's not going to end well for Judah. You will be carried off to Babylon. And your own sons or your grandsons will be castrated, made to serve as eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Hezekiah's only response? At least it's not going to happen in my lifetime. There will be extreme humiliation for Judah. God's people have failed their high calling and they're gonna pay heavily for it. All of this brings them way, way down. Even before the Babylonian exile, they are defeated, bitter, disillusioned. They are downtrodden. And yet with this distressing message of the coming exile weighing down upon God's people, Isaiah 40 begins, and Isaiah 40 begins a major new section in the book. Some will say that it's a different author now taking up his pen, writing during the time of the exile. That's not the case. By the power of the Holy Spirit, rather, Isaiah gets to see into heaven, much like the Apostle John as an exile on the island of Patmos. And as if via prophetic satellite, he gets to see into heaven 
into the future. And what he sees are Jews suffering in the Babylonian exile, something that happened in 586 BC. It's roughly a century and a half after Isaiah's prophecy. His prophecy to Hezekiah has been fulfilled. So the promised land has been conquered. There seems no future for the land or for the people. And God's downtrodden people have been asking, has God forgotten us? Our way is hidden from the Lord, our cause disregarded by our God. Isaiah 40, verse 27. Is he really the sovereign Lord of history, of our lives? Does God really care? Why does he allow this to happen? That sounds familiar to us. That's how we sometimes speak. We have our questions. Well, Isaiah gets to see into the future, but he gets to hear into the future as well. And what he hears is something different from before. He hears the Lord excitedly telling his messengers to get out and to bring a much needed message to his people in exile. This is the message we get to hear today. He wants his downtrodden and dejected people to know that through chastisement, God will bring his people to return on the right path. Even in judgment, God keeps his people's salvation in mind. So he tells his messengers to bring with excitement and with passion this simple message, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Isaiah gets to see and hear God announcing to his downtrodden people in exile to be comforted in spite of their circumstances. God's trustworthiness and his power are so great that even after the well-deserved destruction has come, he would not forsake his people, but he would deliver them from what had befallen them. This truth Isaiah hears is going to work itself out in the coming exile, when in love for his people, he again is going to open up a way for a relationship This is a message that Isaiah the prophet gets to hear in the heavenly court and receives from the heavenly emissaries. And he has to now pass this on to his contemporaries. It's no longer a message of judgment, but assurance, dramatic assurance at that. Comfort, yes, comfort. It's a full and rich exhortation, delivering a full and rich comfort. The Lord God wants to stir up the hearts of his people that they may not despair in the face of their heavy trials. Oh yes, it's true, they will be carried into hard captivity. They're not going to have opportunity to sacrifice in the temple. They're not going to have the revelation of prophets They need not be deprived of all consolation. Judgment's not forever. 
Our God has given us his comforting promise of salvation, of rescue. He is with us in exile. He really is our only hope in this mess. Prophet Isaiah spoke those heavenly, tender, and kind words to us. That's what they could hold on to. Yes, even how God speaks of Judah in this opening verse reveals something of his love. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. My and your. It's undeniably the language of the covenant. It affirms God's love towards his people in spite of their unbelief. The covenant relationship is not broken ultimately because of Israel's exile. Whatever disobedience they've committed and however painful the punishments they will have suffered, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob may never think that God forgets any of his promises. So do you understand, brothers and sisters, this comfort as Isaiah meant it, as the Jews would have understood it? Today's definition of comfort has stripped it of its deep meaning, unfortunately. Many define comfort as something we experience based upon our circumstances. When you hear that word comfort, you might think of sitting in your recliner, maybe after a long, hard day of work, or on a Sunday afternoon, enjoying some refreshments. Comfort for many is really what makes you comfortable. But that's nowhere close to what the Lord has in mind. He doesn't work to make his people comfortable. And that's not the message we proclaim to you today. It's superficial, fleeting, depending, dependent upon what we see with our naked eye. True comfort is far deeper, has to be. The background to our English word catches the meaning well, as a matter of fact. It's two words put together, with and strength. To comfort is to strengthen, to encourage. It's for those who experience adversity, hardships, and are tempted to give up hope. Isaiah was commanded to comfort. He was commanded to set before God's people the whole truth of their own hopelessness and cause them to see the Lord God as their only hope. That's comfort. It's the exact same comfort you and I confess in Lord's Day 1. What is your only comfort in life and death? A fast car, latest gadget, cozy fireplace? No, I am not my own, so I am not hopelessly lost because of my sin but I belong to another, to God, my Savior. What strength, what comfort. That's what Isaiah is proclaiming here. His God sent him out with a promise, with a hope that does not, cannot depend upon us, for there is nothing of our situation on earth that brings true hope outside of Christ. But our only hope is that is one that depends upon God himself. 
He promises deliverance and he breathes new life into us. He strengthens us to face anything while we wait for deliverance. The Lord brings comfort. That's the message of Advent. That's the message for you. God intervening in your life with a comforting promise of hope. Perhaps you've experienced what it really means lately to be in crisis, in turmoil. Perhaps you've experienced in your family a lot of upheaval, whether that's serious illness, financial struggle, or a family member straying from the faith. Perhaps you've experienced depression, inner pain. Perhaps every last human hope has let you down. And maybe you've even thought that your God is against you. Brothers and sisters, your God comes to you this day with comfort and consolation within the context of conflict, of suffering. The life of faith is not only full of struggle, it's also full of release, of hope and freedom. God's deepest desire toward us needy people is to comfort. It's founded on the work of Jesus Christ, the finished work of Jesus Christ. For do we sin? Yes, we do. Do we suffer as a consequence of sin? Yes, we do. But is that where God leaves us? Not a chance. In the context of suffering, God comes with a promise of comfort, overflowing comfort. Even when we don't act like the children of God, he still identifies himself with us. My people, your God. He comes with strength, encouragement to his people in lowly places. Comfort, comfort. That's gospel news for you and me. So we come to our second point where we hear more about this, the content of the Lord's promise. Speak comfort to Jerusalem what he says. This is how Isaiah and other messengers are to proclaim the message of God's comfort. Literally, speak upon the heart of Jerusalem. Speak to the inner being. The Lord is wooing his people back to him with words lavished with undeserved love, refreshment, encouragement. To speak to the heart in scripture is to speak so as to affect the heart by bringing it a message of comfort. Joseph spoke this very way when he addressed his brothers in Genesis 50. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. He spoke a message that was to cheer the heart like gentle rain falling. 
This is how Isaiah is to bring the message of comfort to God's downtrodden people. Speak to the heart, the center of their emotions. And there are to be three ways in which this is to happen. What is the content of his promise? It's what we consider today at Advent. The church is to proclaim, to cry out in a bold manner so that there is no doubt as to the message of salvation. Cry out to her that her warfare has been completed. Uh, With this reference to warfare, Isaiah is simply referring to a period of hardship, a period of misery in general. A period which has now been filled and so is over. The end of her afflictions has come. Again, remember here that Isaiah is still looking, as it were, via prophetic satellite into the future in heaven. He sees and he hears the the Babylonian exile at its conclusion. He sees well into the future that Judah's captivity and her bondage have come to a close. The punishment for sin and apostasy is ended and the people have received an honorable discharge to return back home. There could be no more comforting promise to the downtrodden sinners heading into exile than that the period of turmoil is gonna come, but it's gonna come to an end as well. God Almighty isn't finished with us. He will carry us through the exile, purify us, hold on to us. And he will come with the message that our misery has been completed. Also, the Lord instructs Isaiah to tell his people that her iniquity is pardoned. The iniquity of Jerusalem has been paid in full, carried off. God is not willing to treat his people with the most extreme severity. He's received his people favorably again into his presence. Jerusalem's sins have been atoned for, paid for by a sacrifice on her behalf. The debt's been paid, God has been appeased, and is ready to enter again into a state of favor with his people. The declaration of God's forgiveness of sins brings an end to the misery of God's people so long experienced. The Lord announces that legal payment has been made. The third element of the promise is that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. It's a bit of a unique way of speaking in scripture and its exact meaning is not entirely certain. Some take it literally that God's people have suffered twice as much as they deserve. Others suggest that this is a reference to the reward of God's grace that God's people are about to receive after the punishment they deserved. In light of the previous two phrases in verse two, the point seems to be that Israel's suffering for sin has gone the complete period. All three phases suggest completeness. Her hard service is completed. 
her sins paid for, her experience of God's wrath fulfilled. We hear the mercy of our God. He is satisfied with what his people had experienced. He's not going to harbor anger forever, but show compassion, fatherly kindness, and forgive. God's grace, it's been said, is greater than our sin. Sin and judgment don't last forever. God speaks tenderly to his people and says, it's over. Your sin, your iniquity, all your rebellion, it's all wiped out. But perhaps you'd like to take some issue with this. Perhaps you wonder how the Lord can say all this. He is too gracious. It almost sounds as if the Lord is really only winking at sin. Jerusalem suffered, to be sure, for a complete period of 70 years in exile. That was the time foretold by the prophet Jeremiah. And yet Israel has been sinning for generations upon generations. And all those prophets the Lord sent to bring change into the hearts of his people didn't bring any change. So how can the Lord in our text tell Isaiah to announce to Israel that her hard service has been completed, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins? How can our covenant God be merciful to such an obstinate people? Well, the only way you and I are going to make sense of this ultimately is if we keep on going in Scripture. The Lord God is looking ahead to the coming of the Savior. For it's true. No sacrifice, no hard labor, and no mere prophet could bring real reconciliation during the exile. The Lord is looking ahead here as he delivers his comforting promise. He's proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. He declares that on the basis of a future sacrifice, Jerusalem has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. God has Bethlehem, yes, Calvary, on his mind. He's anticipating the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. Isaiah is going to, of course, speak about that in a few chapters, several chapters about the suffering servant of the Lord. But in a fashion they could never, because of where they are in history, never fully know this suffering servant. They knew him only according to the shadows of the old covenant. But our text alone gives enough of a foretaste of this servant's work. And the character of his work is as follows. We may speak of his obedience as one obedience with two aspects, active and passive obedience. His active obedience was his perfect, flawless obedience to God's moral law, and his passive obedience, you hear the 
almost hear the word passion there, the two are related. His passive obedience was his perfect obedience in bearing in life and in death the curse, the punishment for disobedience from God's moral law. He did it all perfectly. He lived the righteous life and he died in payment for our sins. You might say then that Christ made double payment for all our sins. His life-giving sacrifice for us was complete and full. Lived the righteous life on our behalf and he shouldered the burden of God's wrath on our behalf. At the cross is where we see justice and mercy shown in perfection. The judgment we deserved was placed upon Christ's shoulders. He received from the Lord's hand double for all our sins. And so he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To acquit us, to deliver us from evil, to show us God's true love. Well, this, brothers and sisters, is how your God comes to you this morning. He calls you Jerusalem, my people. He identifies with you even when it seems as if sometimes you're living in exile. He comes with his mercies because he wants us to turn to him. Romans 2 verse 4, the apostle says, the goodness of God leads you toward repentance. Comes with a message of hope to his downtrodden people. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. Do you understand that message as it was originally proclaimed and as it is now proclaimed to you today? Do you see how God's renewing comfort comes to you to turn to him? There may be crisis in your life, turmoil in your circumstances. Your God is calling you to him to find your strength in him. So is this comfort real for you? God has come down to you and he has revealed to you his grace. His message comes in mercy founded upon the blood, sweat, and tears. Yes, the hard, hard service of your Savior. Do you know that your sins have been graciously paid for? Do you realize that you have received from the Lord's hand double for all your sins? Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. That's a powerful comforting song that has meaning only for the child of God who lives by grace, by faith in Christ. Amen.